For centuries, travelers have appreciated the importance of spirituality. From the hardy medieval pilgrims trudging along that road to Canterbury, to modern-day pilgrims who flock to Fatima or Lourdes. But meaningful travel isn't always just about religious sites. It's about attitude. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we meet Dan Austin, who just wrote a spry little book called The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. A pilgrimage is about escaping to a new identity instead of escaping from. From the rooftop of an apartment building to a hike over a mountain pass, Dan finds that spirituality comes from spontaneity and from enjoying the mundane reality of everyday life. I think that generosity is just a human attribute, and people, no matter where you are, if they can, and sometimes even if they can't, will want to help you out if they can tell you're you're on a pilgrimage, you're on a journey, and you're really trying to get something out of the quest. Dan Austin shares his approach to being a road trip pilgrim and the sacred magic that awaits us all if we're just willing to get up and go. Thanks for coming along. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Whether you're heading to the homeland of your favorite tropical fruit or delivering bicycles to former child soldiers at a refugee camp in Uganda, Dan Austin has some exciting ideas about being a road trip pilgrim in today's world. Dan's our guest just ahead as we look into putting a new sense of purpose into our travel plans. And we'll make some time to talk to some of our listeners later this hour to hear their stories of long-term travel overseas. Thanks for being our travel partner today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're going to be pilgrims, and we're joined by a man who's just written a book called Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. Dan Austin joins us. Dan, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. When I first was introduced to this idea of your new book, I thought, well, I didn't quite know if it was going to be a a spiritual thing or a a travel log thing or whatever. I, I enjoyed last night just getting to know this book, and you're kind of a cross between Johnny Knoxville, Charles Kowalt, and Jack Kerouac, I think. I mean, it's quirky, it's it's serious, it's it's also goofy. Yeah, that's that's very flattering. I, I really appreciate that. And thank you for taking some time with the book. That's very nice of you. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I think all those things are true. At least I, I hope that they're true in one sense or another in the book. You know, one thing I wanted to do with this book was kind of reframe the idea of a pilgrimage. Like you said, you say pilgrimage, and typically people think of a spiritual journey. And I wanted to reframe that where, yes, it was spiritual, but it was also kind of a personal spirituality that could be goofy, it could be random. Your pilgrimage could just as easily lead you to a bar as it could to a sacred site, which is kind of what matters to you. You've got a very, um, I guess quirky is the word, uh, mix of irreverence and reverence, I think. One minute I'm thinking the book is just like a, a hoot, and the next minute you've got some very provocative thinking, and the next minute you're getting spiritual on us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that's the nature of meaningful travel. I think when you really want to hit the road and figure out who you are, you have to kind of have two mindsets. One mindset is, you know, this diligence and wanting to get out there and really see the world. And the other one is not taking yourself too seriously, you know. So my experience is that if you, if you go out on the road and you're, you know, you're in a very serious mindset and you're, you're, you're taking yourself too seriously, sometimes you miss those wonderful little spontaneous moments that define travel. And at the same time, you know, you have to have just that openness and that spontaneity when the magical can happen. And I don't know, I found that the most profound moments of spirituality on a quest, if you want to call it that, are sometimes the most mundane moments, you know, you just be kicking back on the side of the road with your friends and something just kind of clicks and you're lost to the road and the universe kind of picks you up and you're there. And I, I think that whole idea has kind of been lost from the archetype of a pilgrimage adopted by religions. And from a travel point of view, you know, I'm like Mr. Guidebook. All I want to do is write guidebooks and figure out that when is the museum open and, and where do you go for lunch? And, and your book is much different. You're talking about dissecting the moment and sitting on the beach where you could be anywhere in the world and, and having a feeling. So your book is kind of a guidebook, but it's also kind of a journal. I think to teach this kind of travel, you have to do it by example, not by telling people what's the phone number and address of a certain place. I think the idea of meaningful travel is so individual and personal that you really can't tell somebody how to have a meaningful quest. You know, you can bring up some ideas. I bring up some ideas in the book, but it's it's very much with the understanding that, that people will figure out their own way and they kind of have to find their own path to what makes sense to them. One of my friends uh, recently read the book and he decided he wanted to go on a pilgrimage. Uh, he runs a bar here in New York and he's pretty famous for these lychee martinis. And so his pilgrimage, he decided to go to Cambodia and visit with the lychee farmers in Cambodia who make the fruit that goes in his martinis. Now, that's a pilgrimage that I would have never thought of going on. And most people would, wouldn't find anything particularly holy about, you know, visiting lychee farmers in Cambodia. But for him, it was like a big deal because it kind of connected him with what he does here in New York with these people in Cambodia who make this all important uh, fruit for his drinks. And you've stumbled onto something there that I think is really critical for having meaningful travel. In fact, you write in your book, the most essential element 
find a sense of purpose every time you hit the road. Yeah, if you can do that, if you, you go into the journey, even if it's a very whimsical sense of purpose. I mean, when we biked across America a few years ago, our destination was the Basketball Hall of Fame. You know, it wasn't like, you know, a cathedral or something, which is nothing wrong with that either, by the way. But, mm-hmm. but it was just something that made sense to us. And because it made sense to us and connected with, at the time, basketball, you know, we'd, we'd grown up with it. It was kind of like this meditation that my best friend and I had between us. That became the thing that really cemented the journey and was important to us. So if you can begin it with a sense of purpose, whether it's lychee martinis and, and the lychee fruit of Cambodia or just whatever, it tends to pull the journey along and allow for the individual to really get more out of the quest. Now, I understand you're just getting over jet lag from a trip to Uganda, working in a refugee camp distributing bicycles. Yeah, that was, speaking of purpose, that was, uh, wow, it was crazy. We, we had this little foundation called 88 Bikes, and we endow an orphanage or a school in a developing part of the world every year with bikes for all the kids. And this year we chose this refugee camp in Patongo, Uganda, which is uh, northern Uganda there. The area has been ravaged by war with the uh, LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army. Luckily now things are pretty peaceful up there. And yet these kids, because of their proximity or lack thereof to Kampala or any other capital urban center, they really get overlooked. And we wanted to do something for these kids, you know, honoring the heroism they've shown really enduring all kinds of horrific, horrific things, a child soldiering and, and whatnot. So we got one-to-one donations from folks here in the first world, and uh, we were able to uh, bring bicycles to these kids in this refugee camp and had this just amazing moment at the beginning of the year where we distributed these bikes to these kids. Uh, it was really amazing. Now, this passion you've got for the plight of child soldiers trying to get their lives back on a peaceful track and so on, was that inspired by your travels, or does some other passion inspire you to travel? You know, I think they kind of feed into each other. Definitely the idea of giving bikes springs from the fact that we've done a lot of, you know, pilgrimages, these road trip pilgrimages by bike. You biked across America, I did a trip down through Mexico, through Europe, and the bike is such a magical symbol, not only of travel, but of also liberation and joy. Um, you can probably remember your first bike, I'd imagine, right, Rick? Yes, I can. I can remember I can remember how exciting it was. We had one in our family, and my sister and I would, would sign up every day after school to see who could ride it for which half-hour stretch. It was so fun to have a bicycle as a kid. Exactly. It's, it frees the person. It's, it's this joyful thing. And, you know, it's the same in the United States as it is in China or Cambodia or Uganda. You know, you give a kid a bike, especially in these difficult circumstances, not only is it something really fun, just like it is, you know, for us growing up, but it's also something that really liberates them, and they can get to school they can uh, ride the bike to work. They can haul stuff around. It's fun, and it's also useful. So people can learn more about that at www.88bikes.com, 88bikes.com. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm speaking with Dan Austin, and Dan is the author of a new book called Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. Dan's talking about giving some meaning to your trip by having a purpose. Dan, when you're thinking about having a meaningful trip, What impact does your budget have on it? Is it a precondition to have money, or can you make a case that the less money you have, the more you're open to adventures that will turn it into a pilgrimage? Absolutely. I I think that oftentimes having very little money can be the best part of the trip, can be your greatest asset, if you will, of the trip, because you're forced to really... You know, to really be with people, to uh, to ride your bike, to take public transportation, to camp out, to really be on the quest. And I think as many layers of insulation as you can strip down from the journey and get to the, the heart of what you're trying to do, you'll come away with that much more meaningfulness from the journey and transcendence and joy and, and great memories. So, in fact, I mean, the less money you have, is, it, it can be a real asset. I, I remember when we biked across America a few years ago, you know, we were dirt poor on that trip. And had we had money, the the film I made about that and, and the experience itself would have been vastly different, and I don't think it would have been half as impactful as it was for us. You know, that's almost a cliche to say you experience more when you have less money. I mean, my favorite trip was my slumming through Europe trip when I was a teenager, and it's just because yeah. my poverty drove me close to the ground and I made more friends and so on. We agree with that. Any traveler, I think, understands the value of that. On the other hand, Dan, have you ever met somebody with plenty of money that chooses to be out there and, and just be a hobo on the road? Hmm. You know, I don't think I've met anybody who chooses to be a a hobo per se, but I have met people who, you know, have toned down the kind of uh, pilgrimage they would choose to have. Instead of staying in, you know, uh, Club Med or whatever, they're, you know, they're staying in guest houses and and they're taking public transportation. And I think that you probably won't find the hobo aspect. (laughs) You really hobo in your book. I mean, uh, I suppose you've had uh, trips where you don't hobo and you do, but you're talking about 
cooking meals for less than a dollar a day, and you're talking about not showering for a month at a time and so on, and it's fun to read, and I think it would be fun for a a wealthy traveler to have that experience. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, pilgrim skills for the, maybe hobo is not the right word, but the the person with very, very little money. Um, Talk about showers. Yeah, you know, when you're on a pilgrimage, the idea of a shower you, you kind of you kind of forget about it, and and like I write in the book, you, you sort of begin to have this special relationship with your filth. You know, you, you you actually kind of like being dirty. It's sort of liberating not having to worry about taking a shower. If you do choose to have to find a shower and you can't afford to get a guest house or whatever, there's a few options I mentioned in the book. One of my favorites is finding like a, a fountain in a public place. But let's let's uh, talk about your filth for a little more because I think this is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You like your filth now. I can relate to that. I can remember times when there's sort of a, you could you could graph how stinky you get as days progress, and it, it peaks. It actually peaks. And yeah. I found sheets are designed to protect your nose from the rest of your body as you sleep. You you cinch it around your neck, and you get fresh air. <laughs> and and it, it just you didn't get dirtier after a little while. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, you know, the only time that uh, it got really bad and we had to consider other options was in, in Scotland. And uh, my brother, Micah, he didn't bring shoes for this quest. I don't know why. He just decided the sandals were going to be his footwear of choice. And it rained every day and we were biking. And so his feet, you know, after a couple of weeks, they were just nasty and they had these blisters and they were, it was, it was terrible. So he get his feet in the tent and the stench from his feet was just insufferable. So that was, was the one and only time when the smell of it was actually so bad that we just forced him to sleep outside or like wash up or something. Or actually my brother who was still four years from his MD prescribed shoes and Micah finally uh, acquiesced and bought some. But typically you get kind of used to yourself and it's, uh, I don't know, I think it's also this essence of when you're on a journey, you're really, um, you're really apart from society in the sense you're kind of neither above nor below. You're beyond those societal constructs that sometimes hold people back. And, you know, being dirty is just another one of those aspects of relinquishing the hold that society has on you and just saying, you know, we're on the road and we're free. So do you wear socks when you're on the road? You know, I really like sandals, actually. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's true. If you're, if, you're, if you're really having that pilgrim experience, you want your biblical sandals, I think. Socks really kind of get in the way, I think. Oh, yeah, especially if you're traveling in tropical countries. In Uganda, I did bring a pair of uh, cross trainers. We were going to climb some volcanoes, and I thought, well, we, you know, we might need something. But typically, it's a, a good sturdy pair of sandals is great. And you want to feel as much as possible on, on a pilgrimage. You, know, you want to really be present. And uh, as, as little clothing as possible is sometimes a good idea. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Dan Austin, who's written a book called Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide, and we're talking getting down and dirty as pilgrims on the road. Have you wandered where a road will lead you? Maybe to a song that needs singing or a summer rain. Or it might be you're afraid to go We continue in a moment with Dan Austin, author of Road Trip Pilgrim. And later in the hour, we'll check in with some of our listeners for their reports and questions on long-term travels abroad. We're at 877-333-RICK and by email, radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Dan Austin, who's written a new book called Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. Dan, when you're on the road, as we're talking about, in so many ways, having a lot of money builds a kind of a wall between you and having that real pilgrimage experience. You don't have any risks when you have a lot of money, and you're not accessible to locals when you have a lot of money, as you would be if you're close to the ground traveling on a shoestring. Your book is sort of a, a guide 
slash journal. And in so many ways, this style of travel has to be done by example. And you've got fun photographs and fun practical tips in here. If you're on the road for an extended period of time with, with almost no money, how do you nourish yourself? What about food? You can eat fairly cheaply, especially in the developing world. Uh, you know, if you avoid restaurants and, and just eat out of grocery stores and food stands and fruit stands and things, uh, you can do pretty well. I mean, I remember one time in, uh, I think it was the UK, we uh, were pretty low on cash and we went to a farmer's market and we bought a cabbage. We bought one cabbage and we stuck it in our pot and we, we boiled it up and that's what we ate. We ate a cabbage for dinner and it was great. It was, it was really good. So if you eat at a farmer's markets and you befriend people along the way who are always apt to invite you over for a free meal, wineries always have tasting hours, stop in for some Pinot Noir and some crackers, you know, apple orchards, uh, usually you, you, know, you can find orchards and things along the way, banana groves. Uh, there's always ways to eat for cheap if you have to. I love that concept that the people who get scut wages, you know, the people who get the lowest pay, they can empathize with you. You charm some of these people, and all of a sudden a waitress is bringing you some food that they're not going to be able to sell, and you got a free meal. Did you actually do that in restaurants? Oh, yeah. We've done it many times. That's, that's a real trick. Um, like I mentioned in the book, I think what you're referring to is, you know, you stop in at the restaurant right before it closes. People are already interested in you because you know, you've rolled up on your bikes or, or whatever, you have your backpack, whatever it is. And they could tell you've been on an, an epic journey, especially if you haven't bathed for a few <laughs> days. And, uh, you know, they're apt to ask a few questions. And, you know, once you order something, they're going to figure you're hungry, but you order just like a bowl of soup or something or a roll. And, you know, they ask if you'd like some more, you say yes, but, you know, we, we can't really afford it. And then at that point, that's when they, they realize that they can do you a favor here. And typically if a restaurant's closing down, there's always leftovers sure. in the kitchen. They're just going to chuck anyway. So, after it's officially closed, then they'll just bring out, you know, a cavalcade of food, which has happened on numerous occasions. One time in West Virginia, especially, it was, it was terrific. We had so much to eat. But if you're scamming free things in many different ways, you talk to the frontline person who's sort of in your boat, who's just barely making it with his wage, and they, they really can help you out then. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think as well, honesty is really important. I mean, you're not, you're not trying to like, uh, you know, be disingenuous with these people or anything. You're just, it's just, you're on the road. And if you open yourself up to these people helping you out, it becomes a mutually mm -hmm. beneficial situation where they, they really do want to help. It gives them kind of a sense of purpose. And it's a great story too. So, you know, as long as you're kind of open about that and just... Yeah. You're a backpacker. You're a, a vagabond. You're a pilgrim. You stumbled onto a fascinating uh, meal that you realized you hadn't invented, even though you thought you invented it, called sludge. I think most pilgrims, uh, you know, probably end up eating this stuff in one incarnation or another at one point or another. For us, we've <laughs> eaten these things quite a bit through different journeys. Uh, sludge is a, is a pasta and soup packet concoction. Basically, you, you toss in a couple Lipton noodle soup packets, you toss in any pasta you happen to have, you boil off all the water, and you've got this very dense, sludgy mass. Uh, you can toss in some tuna fish or anything else you might have left over in your pack and eat the stuff. And, and in the morning, it's kind of congealed into what we call sludge cake. And you can chop it into squares, you dunk it in some ketchup, and you've got a great breakfast. I mean, I know it sounds horrible, but I'm sure as you can concur, Rick, everything tastes better on the road, you know, you including know, sludge. I like that comment because things do taste better on the road. I'll, I'll never forget diving into my spam on the top of a mountain and just thinking, <laughs> this is the greatest food I've ever had. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the funniest thing. I don't know how or why it works that way, but boy, some of those sludge mills we had, mm. um, you know, different countries, whatever, were some of the best. Dan, I, this reminds me, I was sitting once in front of a cathedral in, somewhere in France, and I was eating my baguette with some cheese and uh, just drinking water, I think, and, and there was a bum on the next bench, and we were both just sitting there in our peaceful worlds marveling at the floodlit facade of that Gothic cathedral. And I was having my French version of sludge, I guess, and he was having his, and he had a plastic bottle full of red wine, and he, he looked at me, and he, he leaned over, and he offered me his plastic bottle of red wine. And I thought, you know, life is good. I'm not going to take your wine, but this is a beautiful moment, and you don't need to be wealthy. There's people who are pilgrims, whether they're vagabonds or bums or whatever, that are enjoying the floodlit facade of a great Gothic cathedral. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One last thing on food. Uh, marketplaces all over the world, at the end of the day, they're packing up. You're a likable hobo. They can give you some food. Totally. And, you know, you, you said all over the world, and it's true. The, the generosity that people offer pilgrims isn't just limited to, uh, you know, the Western world or, or any world. I mean, I, I think that generosity is just a, a human attribute. And people, no matter where you are, if they can, and sometimes even if they can't, will want to help you out. If they can tell you're, you're on a pilgrimage, you're on a journey, and you're really trying to get something out of the quest. So, yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, a marketplace, you, 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 can, you can find all kinds of great stuff. 
I'm speaking with Dan Austin. He's the author of a brand new book for people who are vagabonding around the world, turning their trips into meaningful pilgrimages. The book is called Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. The website for the book is uh, roadtrippilgrim.com. It's R-O-A-D, trip, pilgrim, two P's, pilgrim.com. And is this your first book? Second book, actually. What was your other book about? The first book was a memoir about uh, a mountain bike ride across America I took about 10 years ago with my brother and my best yeah. friend. And it was kind of along the same lines, though it was uh, it was a memoir. It wasn't, you know, a kind of a guidebooky sort of thing. It was uh, more about uh, America and our country and just kind of what we discovered riding our bikes across. I, I do documentaries as well. I uh, directed uh, True Fans, the film about a bike trip across America came out before the book. Um, they're sort of partnered, I guess, in some ways. Uh, that film did pretty well. It toured internationally, um, won a bunch of awards, and being turned into a musical on Broadway here in New York. Mm. Then I've done a few other films, too, on Street Kids in Haiti, um, you know, this 88 Bikes Project. I, I shoot a little piece on that every year. Boy, talking about travel and, and spicing in the whole notion of being a pilgrim. And, uh, Dan, I want to touch on a few things that you brought out in your fascinating book. Talk about climbing a sacred mountain. This is one of my favorite things to do on a pilgrimage. The cool thing about climbing a sacred mountain is it doesn't necessarily mean that you're climbing Mount Fuji or circumambulating Mount Kailash or something. Any mountain can become sacred if you choose to make it so. Uh, the example I bring up in the book is this unnamed mountain on the Isle of Skye. We found this little mountain um, during our bike trip and kind of forewent the tourist bus that would take you from one end of the island to the other just you know to see things. In Scotland, by the way, for people who don't Yeah, in Scotland, Isle mm-hmm. of Skye, right. And instead, we just climbed this little mountain, and we had the greatest time. We had a little lunch on top and just really enjoyed actually climbing this mountain. And it it became kind of sacred to us. It became this special place. And, you know, whenever you climb a mountain seeking to, you know, connect or really clear your head or, or gain perspective on things, you know, the mountain can become sacred. Of course, in the same vein, though, there is something special about climbing a, uh, a sacred mountain that has that kind of uh, distinction culturally. What's the one in uh, in Ireland that people climb with their bare feet? Craig Patrick, yeah. Yeah, you, did you yeah we that? climbed that as well. It's a beautiful climb. It's, it takes you, you know, a couple hours, an hour or two. My big challenge bare feet is to go out to the mailbox and back. Uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I can't believe these guys. We didn't climb that one bare. We, we, we didn't do that. A lot of people do, though. You're absolutely yeah. right. Uh, on the last Sunday in July, 30,000 pilgrims climbed to the top yeah. of that thing. And as kind of a, a penitence, I suppose, we climbed it with shoes on. And, and right. you know, it was, it was wonderful to participate in this kind of uh, cultural journey. You know, it's a, there's a something about that solidarity with all these other people. It's meaningful for them. And it, we all connect when you have a special place that has so much history and so much culture and heritage. Absolutely. You know, Craig Patrick, named after St. Patrick, of course, was a sacred mountain long before Patrick arrived on the scene. Mm-hmm. It was sacred to the uh, the ancient folks of Ireland and uh, was home of one of their gods, and they have a harvest festival there. So this idea of sacredness, sacred mountain or sacred place, is something that, that usually transcends whichever religion is in charge at the time. I don't know, something lending the, the thought that there's something about these places, these specific places that is sacred, and, you know, hitting them on a journey— taking part in those communal rituals, but also kind of finding your own sacred places and using that same energy to designate little spaces of your own is one of the most wonderful things about a pilgrimage. And, you know, I love this idea of being a a religious chameleon. You don't need to be untrue to your faith or you don't need to be a, a con artist with God or anything like that, but you can respect the sacredness of other people's sacred spots and it becomes a beautiful part of your travels. And when I think about it, Every major religion on this planet, I've had the opportunity to sort of uh, go with it. And it always is a richer experience when you have that attitude. I think that's that's one of the most beautiful things about traveling, you know, sitting in a cathedral in Latin America and just feeling that the peace, you know, yeah. or, or a temple in, in Asia and just meeting the people and, and feeling the warmth. And no matter what your tradition is, if you even have one, you know, being able to uh, to respect that and to be in those yeah. situations and, and embrace that is, is truly one of the best parts of travel. Speaking of these sacred mountains, I noticed that you actually sleep on top of a mountain. And I thought that was a fascinating idea. Have you actually spent the night on the summit of a mountain in order, I mean, just put out your sleeping bag and and spend the night there and wake up on top of the world? Several times, yeah. We have this mountain in, in Utah where I'm from. We don't sleep quite on the top because it's a little too windy, but very near the top. We, we've camped out a couple of times on New Year's Eve, and you know what a great way to begin the new year, waking yeah. up on top of the mountain on a what I call a Pico pilgrimage. There's this kind of mini journey where you, uh, and maybe it's a last a day or two or a weekend, but uh, but it still has the energy of, of a real quest. And you know, we've done the same thing on mountaintops, and uh, we, we camped out on a mountaintop in Scotland. That was uh, that was really amazing just to wake up and see the sunrise. And, and for me, from a travel point of view, uh, you know, where you choose to sleep is an integral part of the whole travel experience. And on a pilgrimage, you factor that in also where you choose to sleep. 
we talked about sacred space and I think, you know, where you choose to sleep becomes kind of a, a little miniature sacred space because, you know, you're resting for the day and you, you've made that little space special. I'm talking with Dan Austin. He writes a book called The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. Dan, when you're talking about taking a pilgrimage, this is a introspective, uh, personal quest, uh, finding meaning. Is it better to go with somebody or to go on your own? You know, just like the idea of a pilgrimage and where you go on the journey and how you go is is completely individual, so also is the uh, question of uh, with whom to, to go on the journey or to go by yourself. And, you know, I, I think there's real benefits either way. I mean, obviously, you're a lot more mobile, and, and if you're in a real introspective journey, sometimes it's good to have that alone time. At the same time, though, you know, I think that overall I've gotten more out of journeys where I went with a good friend than those I went with alone. And one of the greatest things you take back from the journey is uh, the sense of, you know, the memories and, and, and what you gained from it and being able to share that with someone, you know. Ten years have passed since we biked across America. That for us was a real key journey. It was three and a half months on the road. And my mm -hmm. brother and my best friend and I will still get together and talk about what we did for every day, where uh -huh. we camped every night. And there was tension, you know, anytime you're traveling with people, there's going to be great points, but there's also going to be tension. Despite the tension, you know, that might not have occurred had we gone alone or, or whatever, I, you know, I cannot imagine having done that quest without those guys. I That's mean, they became my best friends. You have a special bond for the rest of your life, having shared all of that adventure. Absolutely. So, I, again, I, th I think it's really up to the individual. But mm -hmm. if you can go with someone, you know, I, I think that's the best way to go. It's also been my experience that when you want to go on a pilgrimage, a real important journey, you really feel that need. You kind of put the desire out there and the right person, the right travel companion will usually kind of appear. Someone who's also at that point in their life, someone you know and, you know, you can really bond with and enjoy the quest with. On a related note, on page 196, you write, meeting and impressing girls on the road while homeless, sweaty, and broke. Yeah, that's a real trick there, Rick. That's a... That's a challenge. That is definitely a challenge. And, and, you know, I put this chapter on love on the pilgrimage and there's almost kind of an aside. Because you compromise your pilgrimage once in a while for the sake of a girlfriend. <laughs> I think well, so. You know, the thing <laughs> is, if you, if you can find that kind of romance on the road, I mean, what's better than that? That's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, at the same time, though, it's not about flings or, you know, whatever. It, it, it's, it, a, a pilgrimage is a really an emotional quest. And one reason I put that chapter in there was to kind of highlight the fact that, uh, even if it's just for the moment, you can have kind of this this deeper sort of connection with someone. Sort of a mental slow dance. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it really absolutely. is to be able to share that with somebody uh, carbonates the value of the trip. You write um, this about serious pilgrimages. You, you say, though historically religious in nature, pilgrimages do not need to be holy quests. Road trip spirituality is as unique as the person who seeks it, often having little to do with any prescribed path. After all, most religions were started by vagabonds, mavericks, and idealistic visionaries with no great love for bureaucracy. Again, the, the idea of a pilgrimage has often been associated with very stringent religious practices. And if that's what you want from your journey, something that's very sober and very stringent, well, that's, that's perfectly fine. And there's, you know, plenty of religions that can offer those kind of things. But the idea of a pilgrimage is not owned necessarily by a religion, or I should say by the bureaucracies that sometimes dominate a religion. It doesn't have to be religious, but it is fascinating to think that great religions were started by Guys who today, if you looked at them, you'd think they were kind of like vagabonds out on the road. They were nomads. It's really interesting, you know. I mean, Jesus himself was a pilgrim, you know, out yeah. there just uh, preaching and, and, and hanging with everybody. I mean, he, he wandered the—he uh, was a pilgrim for three years and without really a home. And Gandhi, and uh, I mean, it's just fascinating Gandhi, to think of all the people who have Muhammad, some serious yeah. thinking. Yeah. When you uh, think about established pilgrimage sites, religious ones, uh, have you ever gone to one of them and had a good experience? Uh, many times, many times. And I think that's the magic of it. Again, no matter whether you, it's someplace that's really special to you or someplace that's special to a lot of people, you can gain wonderful things from both of those things. I remember when my brother and I uh, did the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Of course, that's a very, very well-visited site. You know, thousands, if not millions of people visit Machu Picchu every year. The trail itself is, is pretty well-worn and thousands of people travel it every day, uh, at least every week. You know, yet when we got to Machu Picchu, it was it was a really special experience. It was beautiful. And I think that we were able to connect with that kind of, um, you know, the, the energy that had been sort of sitting there for all those millennia. And when you do that, uh, excuse me, Dan, when you do that, you're, you're in, a, in a magical site that's generally inundated by crass, noisy tourists that are, are kind of clueless to the magic of the yeah. place in so many cases. And it's just really important to have that pilgrim's sensitivity, whether you're doing the Camino to Santiago or whether you're hiking mm -hmm. up to Machu Picchu, to be able to 
peel away the modern tourism and to be there with that magic and that pilgrimage kind of sensitivity. That's a challenge. Absolutely. It's one of the toughest things, especially now where there is so much infrastructure for tourism. And I think everyone, you know, deep down would like to have a really connective kind of experience where it's more than just, uh, wow, that's neat. And they go. But it, it, it's definitely difficult to cut through that stuff. And, and yet one of the great ways you can do it, it's very simple, is just by actually getting out and physically moving to the place. What I mean by that is a year ago, my brother and I were in Cambodia. Uh, we wanted to go to Angkor Wat. And our first morning in Cambodia, instead of taking a, uh, a tuk-tuk, a little a motorcycle taxi, to Angkor Wat, we, we walked to Angkor Wat. Now, it was only like three or four miles to walk there. It wasn't a big deal. But nobody does it. And yet the fact that we actually just walked the distance there to see the temple gave it that extra bit of, of energy and, and magnificence so that when we finally saw the temple in the distance, despite the fact that it was thronged with tourists, we got that rush, you know, because we were on a little Pico pilgrimage. We were on a mini journey. We walked to, the, uh, to Angkor Wat, and as we came around the corner and, and saw the temple, you know, that, that was our shrine. I've been talking with Dan Austin, the author of Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide, and it just seems to me so clear. And when you've got a vacation coming up, whether it's across the state, across the country, or across the seas, you can make that vacation more than a vacation if somehow you can make it a pilgrimage as well. Dan, what's the key to making your vacation a pilgrimage? Just summed up in one little nutshell. The key is choosing a destination and choosing a journey and choosing you know people to go with that gives meaning to the quest, a place that pulls you along and a journey that means something to you. And then going into that quest with a sense of purpose, with a desire to really return a different person than the one that left. And if you go into it with that desire and you go to a place that, that has that kind of significance for you, whether it's a shrine or a bar or a hall of fame or whatever, you will return from that journey changed. And that trip becomes not just an escape from the mundane existence you have nine to five, but sort of a, an experience of rebirth. Exactly. A lot of vacations are escapist. You know, life can be very hectic and people go on vacations to get away from that hecticness. A pilgrimage is the reverse. A pilgrimage is about escaping to a new identity instead of escaping from. Whereas, you know, you come back from a vacation, the world looks pretty much like it did before and you're back. When you come back from a pilgrimage, the whole world is transformed and you've escaped to a new identity and everything has changed. Dan Austin, author of Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide, thanks so much for inspiring us. Best wishes with your travels. Thanks so much, Rick. It's been a real pleasure. Next, we'll see what's on your mind as you prepare for your next vacation, pilgrimage, or even a long-term adventure away from home. We're at 877-333-RICK, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Okay, pilgrims, tell us your story. 877-333-RICK, that's our phone number, and you can post your comments anytime in the radio feedback form at ricksteves.com. Gina's on the line in Fort Collins, Colorado. Gina, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick, how you doing? I wanted to get your thoughts on the gap year phenomenon that most, not most, but many um, Brits, Aussies, and Kiwis take before starting university, and how we can spread the word about this in the States, well, get it's more just, young people traveling. It's just uh, not good for business, I guess, here, is it? No, it certainly isn't, no. But the rest of the world seems to have their different priorities. I think Americans are notorious for having the shortest vacations in the rich world. I know. I've got a friend who runs a, a, a little movement, and it's a very little movement, called Take Back Your Time in the United States, and their national holiday is October 24. Yeah. Because he figures if a European worked as hard as an American does, they could stop working every year October 24th and take the rest of the year off as vacation. Mm. Uh, we don't get to do that. Certainly not. Certainly not. And. When I was a junior in university, um, I took the semester off to go traveling with my sister and a friend of ours, and there were so many people around me. Um, my mother was very encouraging, but a lot of people just thought my life would be over, you know, just taking that one semester off, and I still graduated on time. And um, and what if you didn't? I know, and what if I didn't? Yeah, exactly. You know, and it doesn't. I, I'm telling our kids, you know, it's not going to get any better. If you, if you want to take a year off, it'll be the best year of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So why do you think that in the British, Australian, and, and Kiwi culture, why do you think it's more accepted there than it is here with us in the States? Do you want my honest, candid political yes, opinion? Yes. 
I really believe in our country it's government by and for the people through the corporate interest, through the mm. corporations. And in those mm. countries, it's government by and for the people regardless of corporate needs. Mm. Obviously, we need corporations and we need big companies to give us all the fun things in life. But in our country, everything has to be creating a good business atmosphere, a good business environment. Right. And taking you out of the workforce for a year, especially when you're ready to really dive into that, it's just not something that the system, to me, in its synthetic sort of intelligence is going to encourage. On the other hand, the Brits and the Aussies and the Kiwis, they've got a system where uh, it's not as this rugged individualism. They don't have the opportunities to get wealthy like we have, mm. and they just have more encouragement to live well and live for today. Um, and you get that free spirit when you talk to these Kiwis and these Aussies that have been yeah. traveling for eight months, and you right. ask them, well, what about your job? And they say, well, in our country, there's a requirement that employers give us this time off, and we can come back and have the job. The job's held for them, or they've got the security, or they've got just the confidence to know that, hey, life is short, and I'm in the prime of life, and the world's a fun place to explore. And I really, I just really want to encourage, you know, young people that are listening, like, ever since I took that trip, it really opened up my eyes to the possibilities. I always thought travel was for the, the wealthy, and just always for someone else, and Ever since I took that trip and I saw the possibilities, the last seven or eight years, I've just been traveling and making work and travel a part of my life. And I've been blessed enough to go anywhere from Mongolia to Iceland and working in Japan and Korea and walk in the Camino de Santiago. And just that initial trip was just such an eye-opening experience. And I just want people to know that, especially when you're young, just to grab onto those dreams and really do it, I think... I don't know. It just has really shaped my life in just more ways than I can describe. And I've never met anybody who said, I wish I hadn't gone on this trip or I wish I hadn't, you know, I'm so glad I stayed at my job or the job I hated for, you know, an extra five years. Nobody ever went to their grave wishing they worked harder. Absolutely. absolutely. But now, wait a minute, Gina, are you some sort of a rich heiress or something like this? No, sir. (laughs) Not, Not at all. And I have no debt because of my travel either. I don't believe in credit card debt and... I just have found ways, like I've taught English in, in Japan and Korea, and I find ways to volunteer while I'm okay. overseas. So you, you work hard and live simply here in the States. You're from yeah. Colorado, and then you find a way to travel creatively in a way where you can kind of make it as you go or just travel humbly. Yes, absolutely. And I find that when I travel humbly, you know, we're all humans, and you meet people face-to-face instead of with this barrier between the fancy hotel and, oh, and the yeah. person on the street, and it just... I've just had the richest experiences because I've been a humble traveler with limited means, and it allows you to be more creative. You get to find out how creative you can possibly be. And, and you meet more people. I mean, you, you, you mentioned do. the uh, Camino de Santiago. This is the thousand-year-old pilgrimage sort of trail from basically from Paris to Santiago in Galicia in the northwest of Spain. There are many, many ways to go through, but I started across the Pyrenees in uh, saint jean pierre de port and then I finished in Santiago de Compostela uh, 43 days later. So and, you walked um, every day for 43 days? I did, With yes. pilgrims from around, all over Europe, I suppose? All over Europe and all over the world. It was just... Now, I've been on the square in Santiago when people finish their uh, yes. their pilgrimage, and I'm standing there in front of the cathedral, and there's that scallop shell in the, in the pavement. And oh, these yes. pilgrims, they've got their frayed pants and their frayed walking sticks and their yes. big sunburned smiles, and they come in every morning, because the last overnight, I guess, is like a two-hour hike out of town. Yes. So about 10 o'clock, all the pilgrims come in into the main square, and then what a jubilation as they finally reach that point as pilgrims had for a thousand years, and they look up at the cathedral, and they've accomplished that. And yeah. I, I've, I've been envious because I, I've never taken the time to do it. Tell mm-hmm. me what that was like. It was, out of most of the experiences I've had in my life, especially out of my travel ones, it was the most intense, it was the most beautiful, it was incredibly spiritual, and it was just a, a chance to be quiet with myself and to spend time with these people whose paths you just continue to, to cross and just the lessons that I learned, I still feel like I'm on my Camino to this day. Like they say that your walk really begins once you once you finish in Santiago, and um, wow. it's just it's such a opportunity to really get in touch with yourself and to get in touch with the natural daily rhythms of you know you get tired around sunset and. I would encourage people, if, if they're ever thinking about walking, to walk in either the fall or the spring, because summer it's quite difficult to find a bed. Um, so, Gina, Gina on this, we're talking about this pilgrimage hike across northern Spain to yes. Santiago. Get more concrete. I mean, you talked about the magic and all this sort of thing, but take me to a, uh, one of the little humble huts uh, seven days out. What's it like? What's so special about it? Oh, let's see. One place I can remember, um, I, think, I believe it's in La Faba, 
and you, you come up the hill absolutely exhausted, and I had actually just gotten lost for about three hours, and I had, I had met a friend, and I just thought, I will never see him again, and he was so special to me, and I'm walking up the hill, and I'm just thinking, okay, no, no problem, just let it go, let it go, and I come up the hill, and this is just one of those, the Camino is just full of serendipity, and the most amazing things happen when you just are at your weakest, and, um, and my friend was there at the top waiting for me, and it was just such a wonderful reunion, and inside this refugio is just a, a warm hearth, and the owner has almost transferred Tibet to this place, or it had a very eastern feel inside, and he served uh, vegetables picked from the garden, and it just had a very, very interesting atmosphere in that place, and there was a lot of jewelry around and different things that he was selling, but it was a very warm, a very peaceful place. And it sounds like it was appropriate for the Camino. Yes, This yes. kind of a business uh, metabolism that is tuned into the whole pilgrim spirit. Yes. What does Camino mean? That means the way, doesn't the it? The way, So right. this, this is the hike to St. James. Yes. The people that I hear talking about this, it's, it's just quite quite an experience, and you're getting so far away from the, the normal, crass commercial tourism that right. is mainstream tourism, and it, it just changes you. And what I loved so much about it is I had two shirts, two pairs of pants, two pairs of socks, and you really get to know how little we need to survive and to, and to be happy. And even I, I still sometimes wash some clothes by hand. I got into that habit there, and I just enjoy washing socks by hand. Or um, I, I can tell you one other place that I stayed at. There's a church you can stay in in Granyon, and we actually sleep up in the bell tower. There's different volunteers that stay there through the day helping the pilgrims. But there's this really long table that can fit probably 30 or 40 people. And at night, all the pilgrims come together, and they serve you a dinner. And it's just enchanting hearing all the languages. And you're all in this common purpose, and you just all can come together no matter where you're from or what your beliefs are. And it's very interesting. In that one hostel, they had an open box for donations. And it was the only box I had seen that was open. And it said, leave what you can or take what you need. And that's just really the spirit of that pilgrimage to me. People are just so giving and open and just ready to help a pilgrim. Wow. That, that was in Spain? That was in Spain. That was in Granyon. You mentioned pilgrims, and you throw that word around uh, very casually because you were one and you know what it's all about. Yes. Is it? I mean, what is the deal? Is it religious? It can be. It can be. There, there were many people who were Catholic and were doing it for the traditional reasons, but I would say that everybody's got a different reason to do the pilgrimage. A lot of people do it for exercise nowadays. A lot of people do it for an affordable holiday because the different refuges sometimes cost as little as two euros a night or some are just donation and up to maybe 10 euros a night for a private one. But you, you meet all kinds of people with um, different purposes. But I think the most common pilgrim you meet is someone who's at a crucial moment in their life. You meet a lot of people who've got a lot of big decisions to think over in their minds and to try to decide what they're going to do when they return. And I think the pilgrimage gives you an open mind and an open heart, and it really allows people to make those decisions that they need to after spending good quality time with themselves. Gina, what an inspiration you are after this pilgrimage, after this chance to, as you talk about, take a, a little gap between your busy workaday world here and our right. wild and crazy uh, uh, American commercial existence. And, you know, that's our lifestyle, and we like it, and a lot of us celebrate that. But, hey, if you've never taken a break, yeah. you may not know what you're missing. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and I know a lot of young people who are heading off to college, many colleges are very happy to accept you and offer you a one-year a gap year. They figure oh. it's better to see you a year later, so you can get that spot at that great college, and they will applaud you for taking a year off. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I've heard that it's mostly older people who do the walk, you know, maybe in their 50s, and I met a tech man who was in his 80s who was beating me to the hostels every single day. But there were also a lot of young people, too, and I'm, I'm 29 now, um, and I did it when I was 27. All right. And, Gina, um, Gina yeah. from Fort Collins, Colorado. we got to run, but thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. Nice talking to you. Call again. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. We have Kim on the line in Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Kim. Thanks for the call. Hi. How are you? Rick? Is this Rick? This is Rick, yeah. Wow, I feel like I know you. I spent hours and hours preparing for my trip to Europe on your website. So. All right, and uh, what kind of trip are you doing and what kind of uh, concerns or thoughts do you have to share? 
Well, I already I already went on the trip. I went nine months last year with my sister to Europe. We went to 11 countries, 26 different cities. And how was it? It was a lifetime of memories and pictures and meeting people and food, and uh, I can't say enough. Kim, what kind of accommodations did you stay in mostly? We stayed in self-catering apartments, and the reason why, because we were there so long, I'm a chef, and so we thought we would go to the markets and get the local food and uh, produce, the uh, meats, and cook at home every night get a bottle of wine. It was great. This is very timely, Kim, because, of course, our dollar is not as strong as we'd like it to be, and people are always asking me, how can we travel creatively in a way that's uh, less costly? And I always tell them, I'm tuned into traveling in hotels a day here and a day there, but if you're going to stay a little longer, you can rent self-catering apartments anywhere in Europe, and self-catering means it comes with a kitchen, and my hunch is for a week in a self-catering apartment, two people would spend about what they would spend for maybe two two or three days in a hotel. Uh, does that make sense to you from your experience? Yes, we kind of budgeted about 500 a week for our place that we lived in. So, uh, and that's for two people? That was for two, my sister and I. And we stayed on pass pretty good till we hit places like England, and of course everything right. is double there. We were fortunate that the euro hadn't gone up that much yet until right. we came back. So we did pretty good on all our budgets because of that. Now, that's about $70 a day for the two of you, and you get your own kitchen. So it's it's really $35 a day per person plus groceries, if you want to look at it that way. And would you say that most of these self-catering apartments go by the week? Do they have a minimum? They had three days. Most of them are three-day minimum. And would, so, it, would it be cheaper to stay for a week per day than three days, or is it just a daily rate, uh, minimum three days? Uh, we found uh, mostly a daily rate. They just wanted three days as a minimum. So that's pretty darn good. And um, how do you get information on apartments? Uh, and, and tell well, us a little bit about Well, we found some great websites. We went to homelydays.com. That was where we did most of ours. It's a French site but you can get it in any language. So homelydays.com was great. VRBO was great. Um, UK Rentals. We found the top sites, and uh, I had my laptop with me, and when we didn't have a place, we'd be on booking uh, ahead. So, If you were to Google just in general, could you look Apartments Paris and, and find these kind of agencies? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. And that, that one agency you really liked, I, I couldn't quite hear you. Home Liday. What it's is Home Liday's. It's spelled H-O-M-E-L-I-D-A-Y-S. Okay, like holidays, home but holidays, but, but Home Liday's. Yes, but Home Liday's. So you're making it was your our homes. favorite. And were most of these apartments like an apartment in a six-story building where you've got a lot of local people living around you, or, or how does that uh, work? Sometimes it depended on the city. We were in beautiful 17th floor, the top floor in Paris. And then in other places, we rented villas in the middle of Tuscany in a place that had like 12 rooms in smaller buildings. They were all different. They varied, which was really great. Sometimes we'd be right in the middle of the city, and sometimes we'd be way in the middle of the country. And have you come across a guidebook that covers this kind of accommodation? No, you know, I didn't. And so, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to, you know, talk to you about. We had some great landlords who do this for a living, and uh, they have extra, you know, apartments that they buy and rent out specifically, and they always ask us to pass this along, um, yeah. but there's no real guidebook for that. Right. It's very competitive, and when I'm doing my research for my guidebooks, I'm always bumping into these people who are sort of like um, organizers, uh, godfathers of all the local apartments for rent, and they want to mm-hmm. get in the guidebooks, and uh, they're hardworking, entrepreneurial people that just need to get out there, and I think they rely primarily on, on the web, as you and your sister did. Hey, thanks very mm-hmm. much. You're welcome. That's a great idea. And, uh, you know, a nice thing about staying in a self-catering apartments is you have an excuse to go into those markets and pick up the fresh ingredients. If you know how to cook, yeah. uh, why not we do that? we had everything we needed. All sometimes right. we were in studios, sometimes two bedrooms for the money, so... Thanks very much, Kim, and happy travels. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye now. And Joe in uh, Gilbert, Arizona, emailed us, and, and Joe asks, what's the best way to get tickets for the Passion Play in Oberammergau, Germany? 
Yes, the Passion Play is coming up. Every 10 years, the little town of Obramagar celebrates their um, deliverance from the plague. I think it was 350 years ago, the plague was barreling in on that town, and, and the villagers got together, and they made a deal with God, and they said, please spare us from the plague. That plague is killing entire populations all around us. And they said, if you spare us from the plague, every 10 years, we'll do a great play. We'll put it on celebrating the story of Jesus or the Passion. And uh, the plague stopped at the door of the town. The town was spared, and for 350 years, every decade on the decade, the people of Oberammergau have gotten together and made this wonderful play showing uh, the story of the last days of Jesus' life, the Passion. It's called the Passion Play. Of course, in the last uh, generation or two, it's been a big part of the town's economy. They have 100 days of the play in a row. I believe there's 5,000 seats in the theater, so you got 100 performances, 5,000 per performance, so uh, it's half a million people get to see it every decade. It's in German. It's all day long. It's filled with tour groups from uh, nice Christian Midwest towns that are going over there to see the Passion Play. You can bet with 5,000 people uh, dealing with jet lag, going over there for all-day play in German, very slow-moving medieval-style tableaus, big, long lunch break, coming back in the afternoon, I would bet more than a handful of those people decide to go back to the hotel. My experience in several occasions is trying to get tickets for the Oberammergau Passion Play is very tough because they're snapped up by speculators, tour organizers, people that will make you buy an entire tour just to see the play, and they'll make a lot of money. I don't know how you can get individual tickets to the play without buying an entire tour, but I do know that you can show up on the morning and find no-show tickets and buy tickets right at the door. I've done it. Or you can go after lunch and fill in seats for people who don't come back after lunch. And those of you who are flexible enough to uh, risk not getting into the play at all, but be there and see if you can, I would say there's a better than a 90% chance that you can get in, and you can get in without spending a lot of money. So, Joe, if you're interested in the Passion Play in Germany in 2010, and if you're on a budget, or if you're frustrated by getting those tickets, just show up at the door and uh, say a little prayer. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We're assisted by Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our friends at the Radio Foundation in New York for their help today. Tell us about your travels. There's a message board for posting your comments and travel reports in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. His Europe 101, History and Art for Travellers, and his new Travel as a Political Act books deal with a higher set of road skills. And his country and city guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.